everyone. I am privileged to have this time to present this message to you all today, giving Todd a break with uh, having a chance to be on retreat for a week with other pastors and just being refreshed by that. I'd like for you to, if you do have the scriptures with you, to turn to Jonah, chapter 1, verses 17, that's the last verse of the chapter, and all of chapter 2, it's fairly short, or if you just want to listen along, that's fine as well. So Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, and all of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This is God's word for us. Let it dwell in our hearts richly. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you will use this time to take your word and put it into our hearts. We may know even more fully and firmly that you are sovereign that you have great things for your people. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why a sermon from Jonah? Haven't we heard enough sermons from Jonah? I mean, I've, I've been in church probably all of my 67 years of life, my parents taking me to church soon after I was born. And yes, I've probably heard several dozen sermons on Jonah, and we've had uh, sermons here on on Jonah, but why would I want to come back and look at this again? Well, I remember listening to uh, a teaching series by Dr. Sproul, and one of the series he talks about when he was teaching seminary, he was teaching young seminarians about how to preach. So the first day of class, these men who were about halfway through seminary by this point come into the class, and he says, the first lesson today uh, was going to be about how to preach, and my assignment for you for the next time we meet is, here's the passage of Scripture, gave them the reference, and said, I want you to look at this and write down 50 observations from this passage. Well, there's a little bit of surprise, but they went home and worked on that and came back 
the next class time, and most everybody had 50 observations, and they discussed that. Then at the end of the class, he said, okay, my assignment for the next class is, same passage, write down another 50 observations. And so it was a little bit of grumbling, and some of the work, but they worked hard and came back to class, and most everybody had another 50. And they talked about that. And then he, at the end of the class, he said, the next class when we meet, same passage of scripture, give me another 50 observations. And there was a lots of uh, sighs and explanations of frustration, and they worked really hard and came back, and not many had another 50 observations. And Sproul, Dr. Sproul then um, posted his analysis, his observations from that passage, several hundreds of observations just to show them that it could be done. And so I bring up this story because I, I think when I think about that story from him, I think, now wouldn't that be an interesting thing that a pastor could preach the same passage of Scripture every Sunday for a year and always bring in something new, some other observation, some other interpretation that would help explain the fullness of the Scripture. Now, that's not anything I'm going to ask Todd to do, so yeah, you can rest assured on that. But I, I, I'm not trying to supplement, I'm only trying to supplement a little bit when I read through this passage what came to me in my understanding, to, to understand the linkages here that are going on. And I'd like to bring two parallel ideas together um, and look at how this passage applies to Jonah and to Jesus and to us. First idea is, is from a, a, um, a pastor, Mark Jones. He's a teaching elder in the PCA. He wrote a book called Knowing Christ. And in this book, he has this... Um, this idea that the messianic passages in the Old Testament were primarily meant for Jesus to read, for him to read through the scripture and understand the purpose and trajectory of his life and ministry to include his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, some might wonder, why, is this, why would this be the case? After all, Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature as the second person of the Trinity, and a human nature derived from his mother Mary. Could not his divine mind communicate to his human mind and inform him of everything? Well, growing up in the church, I had, was often told that there was this veil that was between Jesus' human and divine minds. Well, that really doesn't explain anything, not to me. A much better explanation, I think, would be this, that Jesus whose mission it was to be the second Adam, needed to operate as a human being and therefore was dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to communicate the mind of God to him just as any other human being was dependent on the Spirit and the Scriptures. Jesus was the perfect substitute for us so that his death on the cross would be the perfect sacrifice for all the sins of the elect. So he had to be fully 
and only human in his ministry to earn that, self, that um, perfection for us that he could give to us. Transferring that perfect obedience that we might become righteous in the Father's eyes. It was necessary for him to be fully human and obey all the, the commandments of God as a human and not operate with, with the other aspect of his divine nature. The second idea I'd like to bring in is that throughout the Old Testament, these people and events all point to Jesus serving either as archetypes or antitypes. Either they symbolically portray Jesus in the work of his life and ministry, or they show just the exact opposite. With both sides here, we can fully understand who Jesus is and what he came to do as the Messiah. Adam, for example, is both archetype and antitype. Antitype in that where Adam failed to be the obedient head of humanity, Jesus succeeded. As a sinless man, Jesus chose to always perfectly obey all of God's commands. He was an archetype in that Adam was the federal head of all humanity by natural generation. So Jesus is also the federal head of all humanity by spiritual regeneration. So now we come to Jonah. He, for the most part, he's an antitype. We know that Jesus was obedient to God in all things, but Jonah disobeyed God's call, and he ran in the opposite direction. Jesus had compassion on the multitudes and sought to redeem a people for himself. While Jonah cared more about the castor bean plant that sprouted up to provide him shade than he did about the 120,000 people of Nineveh. Jesus encouraged repentance, and Jonah was angry that the people of Nineveh repented. Yet, here in the middle of this book, this short book of Jonah, we see Jonah not as an antitype, but as an archetype. Here, Jonah is prefiguring Jesus in this prayer, which is structured like a psalm, which is a song, which is why I've called this sermon the Song of Jonah. And so here's, here's my three-point outline for you today. We have the description of dying, which is the collapse of hope. We have the despair of death, which is the absence of hope. And the third point, the despair of resurrection, the restoration of hope. Now, I chose this New Testament passage not because Jesus calls attention to the life of Jonah, that Jonah is the archetype. When the scribes and Pharisees asked for a sign, if I had been in Jesus' shoes, I think I would have been a bit taken aback by that question. I would have had, maybe had a look of incredulity across my face. I would have said, haven't I been doing miracles right in front of you all this time? Which one wasn't adequate for you to understand who I am? So Jesus gives him gives them, rather, the most powerful sign he can recall from Scripture, the sign of Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, because that so much informed Jesus about who he is. It was on his mind. What Jesus didn't say out loud, but the understanding of the text demands is, is that just as Jonah re-entered the land of the living after those three days and three nights, 
So Jesus himself will reappear living and breathing and fulfilling his ministry. And Jesus takes this further. Nineveh repented at the spare preaching of Jonah of a coming judgment. Jesus is greater than Jonah. For those who do not repent to Jesus' proclamation, only final judgment awaits. Jesus did not pick this passage out of a hat. There are many different stories in the scriptures that would serve as some sort of sign. This passage spoke to him and informed and shaped him of his understanding of his ministry, life, and death, and resurrection. He's going to face the judgment and wrath of God, facing the yearning pit of death itself, and trust in his coming resurrection. So let's look at the verse we started with, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, it might be tempting to think of Disney's Pinocchio when you come to this passage. I know it certainly came to my mind that um, here we have um, Pinocchio, the puppet maker Geppetto, Jiminy Cricket, the whole gang there in this cavernous stomach of the great whale Monstro. In fact, there's so much room, there's even furniture in there. Um, Yeah, there's plenty of room there. And it's, it's I, I want you to think, rather than a living room of what Jonah experienced, more like a burial shroud. Jonah would have been tightly contained in the fish's stomach. No room to move. No room even to breathe. In fact, we shouldn't think of Jonah being alive at all. Here... Jonah is dead. These verses in chapter 2, this is a song that Jonah sings in his soul, a psalm to the Lord inspired by the Spirit. He sings things here beyond his knowing, informed by his own knowledge of Scripture, and particularly the Psalms. And though there are new thoughts and words from the Spirit, so what Jonah sings here applies not only to himself, but to Jonah's Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we are in Christ, those of us called according to his design and promise, we find that this can apply to us as well. So let's look at these things. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 speak of the anguish and the pain that the Messiah will face, the suffering servant, as he was to suffer on the cross. And it pictures for us how Jesus was physically, emotionally, and spiritually spent, bearing up under the judgment and wrath of God. In contrast to those passages we have here in Jonah, what it's like to die. These words are designed to specifically address Jonah's personal experience but they serve as figures to us of what death is like. Let's look at those words here in verse 2. We see the word, out of my distress, knowing, as far as Jonah was concerned, that this was the end, no hope of saving himself, not expecting any other human to rescue him from drowning. 
Verse 5, he says, The waters closed over me to take my life. Deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Jonah explains here that he felt his life stealing away from him, pulling him down, down into the cold, down into the dark, losing what little air was left in his lungs. It was the feeling of being completely overwhelmed and of having no ability to overcome it. Verse 6, I went down, he says, where the bars closed upon me forever. The feeling of being trapped, imprisoned. Death was closing around him like a cage, and he was unable to escape. Verse 7, my life was fainting away. Here's the loss of consciousness, the loss of awareness of his surroundings, the experience of having everything being taken away. How does this apply to Jesus? Jesus was being prepared to face death. And there was a need for him to have an understanding from Scripture of what this experience would be. Dying is personal. And it comes to Jesus as a natural consequence of the process of crucifixion. The experience of facing the Father's judgment would also be, in and of itself, destructive to a human being. So all in all, Jesus could face his own death with a confidence that this is a known quantity. How does that apply to us? Unless the Lord returns soon, each one of us will face our own dying. We should not be unprepared. And this passage is the one that should help us with that. It's a chilling passage to read and to contemplate. We should take comfort in the fact that this is not the end of the story for us. We have a Savior who has conquered death. For us, this is but a little sleep for the body, and our soul will be cared for and find a light in the presence of God, our Savior. The second part of the this, this sermon is we come to the despair of death. It's all wrapped up in the word Sheol. It's not simply death with a little d as a statement of fact. It's the idea of death with a capital D. It's more than the grave, as one study Bible I had said. It's a place characterized by loss of hope. Dante Alighieri, the great Italian poet who wrote the Divine Comedy, had this crushing warning written over the entrance to hell. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That's an apt description for Sheol, as the Hebrews understood that. Now, the word Sheol occurs 65 times in the Old Testament, and it gives you a description of what's going on here. It says it's a place of sorrow and death, Genesis chapter 42. It shows judgment by God, Numbers 16 in Psalm 55. It's a captivity, 2 Samuel 22. It's leaving this life, never to return, Job chapter 7. It's darkness and loss of hope, Job 17. That's loss of memory and loss of praise to God, Psalm 6. It's a place of the wicked, Psalm 9. You are cut off from God if, when you're there, Psalm 88. There is distress and anguish, Psalm 116. Sheol has an unending appetite, eating life, Proverbs 30 and Isaiah 5 and Habakkuk 2. There's no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, 
there's no wisdom there. Ecclesiastes 9. It's a loss of community, of fellowship with others. Isaiah 38. And there is no thanksgiving, no praise to God. Isaiah 38. So here's what we hear in Jonah's song as he deals with that despair of Sheol. Verse 3, you're cast into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, waves and billows, he says. To the Hebrew mind, the sea was a fearful environment. There were other nations who were seafarers, not Israel. There were fishermen in the Mediterranean Sea, but they seemed to have never ventured beyond the side of land, hugging the coastland. The sea and the ocean were pictures of destruction, chaos, and doom. To be thrown into the sea was the very picture of surrendering your life. Verse 4, he says, I was driven from God's sight. Here is the abandonment by God, taken to be so far away that not even God can see him anymore. Verse 6, down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. There's a finality here. Once in the cage, forever in the cage. There's no escape, no rescue, no hope of return to loved ones and the comfort of life. Does this apply to Jesus? How? To give into, this, into the despair of death was a temptation for Jesus. He was to die a most horrific death, facing it in both body and spirit, unlike any other human has ever had to do. Don't think Jesus would have prayed the way he did at the Mount of Olives if death was something he could avoid that day. Despair as a temptation, was nipping at his heels, and he had to fight that despair. Certainly how understanding how it applies to us today, the coldness and loneliness of death face us in our weakness of mind and body because we've been broken by sin. We see in the natural world that death is final. We can never speak again with our loved ones or hold them or enjoy their company silent mound of dirt or a granite cubbyhole. It's all we have left of those who have died. Despair nips at our heels too. The temptation to give in and give up because we never see anything different. That's why we need the gospel. And our third point today is that we come to the despair of resurrection. Now, despair is one of those words we don't use much anymore today. It's one of those perfectly good English words that have fallen into disuse. It is the antidote of despair. Where despair is the loss of hope, respair is the injection of new, fresh hope. It's a gospel word. And we have the gospel wrapped up in the hope of resurrection. Here's where in the midst of Jonah's song of despair, we see glimpses of hope. That's the promise of the gospel. Verse 2, he answered me, you heard my voice. And Jonah's song, he called out to the Lord after three days and three nights, even though he had been up until that time doing everything he could to avoid God's direction. This shows the depths of despair that Jonah was in, that he would turn to the one who put him in this condition as chastisement for his disobedience. Verse 4, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
Amazing, isn't it, that in the midst of drowning, of dying, of death, that Jonah would put that into his song? What could possibly make Jonah think that not only could he be rescued, saved from death, but be able to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship again? This is the work of the Holy Spirit, informing Jonah of the content of this song, that there is a hope beyond what man himself can do. It's only by the work of God that Jonah could be and would be rescued. Verse 5, you brought me up out of the pit. Sheol is a pit, inescapable by us, but not inescapable by the work of God. God is strong enough, mighty enough to rescue even out of the pit, out of Sheol. Here Jonah is informed by the Spirit. In verse 9, the crescendo. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here Jonah expresses clearly, with clear confidence, that he will visit the temple again to worship, paying his sacrifice, his burnt offering and thank offering, fulfilling his vow, being filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. He ends with this triumphant shout, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's at that grand acknowledgement. Here is the triumph of faith over despair, of obedience over disobedience. It's faith made new, overcoming all obstacles, overcoming, overpowering despair and sorrow and grief. And it's at this moment, at this shout of triumph, the Lord tells the great fish to spew Jonah back onto the dry ground, back into the land of the living, back into air and life and sunshine and fellowship, back onto the path that God had selected for Jonah. So how does this apply to Jesus? I have this picture in my mind that Jesus finishes the Last Supper with his disciples, and he takes them out with him, and they go to the Mount of Olives. He leaves the majority of them at the entrance of the garden, taking Peter and James and John with him into the garden, asks them to pray, and then goes farther in to pray by himself. He prays deeply that the cup of judgment and wrath would be bypassed. He knows Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He knows the agony that he will face. And from the song of Jonah, he knows what it will be like to die, to face the abyss of Sheol. He prays earnestly, and when he received confirmation from the Father that he must indeed drink this cup, he prays all the more harder that he would be able to bear up, withstand the judgment, the full onslaught of divine wrath. And when the angels come down to minister to him, Jesus recalls the final part of this song, the despair of resurrection, the shout of triumph, Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is now prepared to face the coming mob who will arrest him, take him to the trial, and face the cross, the tomb, all for the sake of redeeming a people for himself and rising again on the third day, just like Jonah. So how does this apply to us? We are in Christ. We have a share of all that Christ has done and what he owns. Resurrection, it's ours. Death may come, 
But it's not the end of the story. The grave is not final. We will be brought up and out of the pit, restored to a new life and new bodies that reflect the glory of God to enjoy life and work and worship forever and in true and unbroken companionship with our Lord Jesus Christ. We also will shout triumphantly, salvation belongs to the Lord. Some of you may not have this assurance. I've not yet grasped it. I invite you to speak with me or Pastor Todd or with some of the other elders that you know to explore this glorious message of restoration. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have given us your word that even in the midst of dying in despair that there is triumph that you have provided your spirit to this poor man Jonah that he could preach more to us than he did to the Ninevites giving us a message of hope and wonder so Father we thank you for these things we thank you for the blessing of scripture in Jesus name we pray Amen.